We have been looking at a number of themes related to leadership, and I've been using the uh, Leadership Bible for this purpose. I have to say, I had great pleasure in putting this together with two friends of mine, Sid, Sid Buzzle and uh, Bill Perkins, and um, what we sought to do was to integrate biblical concepts of leadership in such a way that we would look at three basic categories. We've already looked at the categories of personal development. This included character, commitment, courage, risk-taking, dependence on God, humility, integrity, leader qualifications, obedience to God, priorities, purpose and passion, self-discipline, values, vision, and wisdom. We've gone through that. And moving from personal development, we've been looking now at skill development. The, the, what are the skills that a leader needs to have? And all of us are called to some form of leadership in our arenas of influence. The skills we've looked at so far include accountability, change and innovation, communicating vision, uh, communication skills, conflict management, decision making, what we call double-loop learning, empowerment, justice, leadership development, the learning organization, long-range planning, and that brings us up to where we are now, which is what we were going to call management of human resources or human resource development, which is another key theme. How do we develop people? How do we develop men and women and manage those tremendous and rich God-given resources. The first text I want us to look at would be Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13, where we see an image of the unity in the body of Christ as an expression of the diversity of gifts and yet the unity of the Spirit. And specifically, verses, um, verses 11 to 13, where Paul tells the Ephesians, speaking about the giving of gifts as a result of the ascension to the right hand of the Father and the gift of the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts that were imparted, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the purpose of these gifts then is the maturation, the edification, the building up, and the unification of the body of Christ in such a way that they are no longer like children being tossed away around by every wave and wind of doctrine, but rather that they have a stability and a maturity, a depth, and a Christ-likeness, so that each member of the body will be somehow united together by the power and bond of the Holy Spirit, and that people will edify one another, build each other up, and move to a corporate uh, sense of maturity. Again, I'm fond of saying that we come to faith as individuals, but we grow in community. So you need the corporate dimension of the body to grow. You will not grow by yourself. You cannot grow when you're isolated. It requires the whole idea of the body itself, and the idea of the church, not so much as an organization as it is an organism. And to see that the organism of the church as the body requires then a corporate spirituality in which we nurture one another, build one another up, and serve one another, and love one another. Manifesting the love of Christ by loving each other as we would love him. So in looking at this text then, we see that Christ himself is the one who called 
those who would serve as foundation stones of his church. The risen Christ called some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, and he endowed every believer with unique packages, if we might call, or mixes of spiritual gifts. Because even the gift of teaching admits of a wide variety of kinds of gifts of teaching. Some people are skilled at teaching children, some at adults, all kinds of different uh, approaches here. And it's my conviction that the combination of your gifts and the unique temperament, background, experience, education, uh, and arena of influence gives you a unique ministry. But God has, I believe, equipped you and called you and purposed you for a mission. That you are, as a steward of God, a person who owns nothing, but rather you are accountable to the resources of another, to manage the resources of another. Even your gifts and talents are not your own. Though we often proudly suppose we are, they are. They're actually, they're, what do you have that wasn't first given to you? Even your abilities are there as gifts of God. And as a steward, then, you don't own anything, but you manage the resources of another. And also, as an ambassador, you're not even on your own business. You're on the king's business. You are a man on a mission. And your mission, therefore, is to be representative of, a, of the affairs of another. And thus the affairs of the king become your affairs, and you are going to be again accountable for the way you administer those affairs. So understanding that, that these gifts are really a marvelous stewardship to, that's been entrusted to us to equip us and prepare us so that our lives at the end will count. It's my conviction that God's desire in us is for us to have our deep desires fulfilled, and our deep desire, our deep longing is to have made a difference. Our deep and abiding desire, I believe, as men, is to make a lasting difference, not just a difference that's forgotten in the next two or three generations, but a lasting difference, one that reverberates through eternity. Jesus said that apart from me, you can do a few things. <laughs> what did he say? It's a, it's a frightening word. Apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. And we know what that means. It means, sure, we can build companies and, bu and buildings and so forth, but all that will perish. What is it that you can do that will endure forever? That's fruit, not works. And it's relationships, and it's his life in you. As you abide in his life, he manifests spiritual fruit through us and through the power of the indwelling spirit that lasts. I have called you to bear fruit and fruit that will endure. And you long, I believe every one of us longs to have made a difference. And the more marvelous thing is God's so gifted you and equipped you that you can, in fact, be empowered to make a difference by taking the Word of God, which is timeless, and investing that in also eternal beings, namely humans, created in God's image, and thus taking those two things that reverberate on this earth into eternity, you're investing God's truth in God's people, and consequently being a person who makes a difference that'll last forever, that it'll have eternal consequences as an impressive and heady mission. That's, there, I can think of no higher, more significant calling than to become like him and equip others to do the same. And so this is a wonderful picture then of unique spiritual gifts and spheres of spiritual leadership that God's given us. So that it's not merely for the enjoyment of the recipients, but that we could exercise these abilities to prepare God's people for works of service, as it says in verse 12. So these works would be works that would bring pleasure to him, honor and glory to him, and enjoyment and satisfaction to the people of God. So I have to ask myself, 
In what capacity am I gifted by God to help in the development of others? And we, you need to ask yourself the same way. It's a good thing for us to kind of run a spiritual inventory from time to time and see what is it that God has equipped you to do? What do you bring to the table? And how would he be pleased to see that worked out in your, in your very life? To remember that idea from Chariots of Fire, when Eric Little, the flying Scotsman, has a conversation in the hills of Scotland with his uh, sister Jenny, who wants him to go off to China. After all, that's what he was supposed to do, be a missionary to China. And she's very concerned by the fact that he's been preparing and exercising and getting ready to compete in the 1924 Paris Olympics. Remember the story where she says uh, she's, she just doesn't understand it. It sounds like he's just lost his vision and calling. He says, but Jenny, I know that God's made me for a purpose. He made me for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He says, it's not just for some tin pot or something like that. It's for something more than that. It's for something that will really last. And it would give him pleasure and honor for me to, to do this work with excellence. So he sees everything, whether it's the running or the mission work, as all one thing. So that whatever you do, you do for his pleasure. And there is no sacred secular in that arena. Now you're called to take those things you've been gifted to do and, in fact, to feel God's pleasure by releasing that ability and seeing that potential being fulfilled in your life. It brings God pleasure to see his people in that way. In fact, one of the great tragedies will be the sin of unused potential. And you, know, you think about that idea of all the potential that we bring to the table, much of which I fear. In fact, I, I fear that the majority of our potential will not have been released, perhaps because of a fear of kind of stepping out in trust, holding back in disbelief, maybe our own selfish ambitions, whatever it is, missing out. And missing out on the best because we gave ourselves in exchange for things that may appear to be good, but they really became the enemy of the best in our lives. And so as I look at this, I want to consider, as we always do, we start with who God is and then move to who I am, then how I think and what I do. So let's look at a text that tells us about managing human resources and human resource development and who God is. This idea of God's pleasure and desire, who knows our aptitudes and knows our abilities since he created us, and since he loves us, wants us to see us move to the development of that potential. The text I have in mind is Jeremiah chapter 1, and it's the commissioning of Jeremiah as a prophet. And in this text, verses 4 through 10 in Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah hears this word from God, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. That's a strong word, isn't it? Before he was even born, while he was in his mother's womb, God actually discerned and caused him to be a man of a, with a purpose. Even before he had any days on this planet, God had marked him out for a mission, and you have been marked out in the same way. You are not here by accident. As one, as one writer puts it, it's either chance or the dance. Everything's all chance, or it's part of a great dance, the dance of God's uh, marvelous plan where he works all things together for the fruition of his will. And we're part of a cosmic dance, part of God's uh, pleasure where he seeks to cause us to enter into and participate in something that will last. 
Jeremiah's response, though, Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. You see, the the Lord not only equipped Jeremiah for this ministry, but he also empowered him. God never calls us without also empowering us. Whatever he's called you to do, he will also empower you to fulfill. And so we see this picture here of how God equips each of his adopted children with a singular mix of temperament and education and background and aptitudes and abilities. And he couples that unique mix with a distinct sphere of influence, a sphere of ministry that God sovereignly entrusted you with. Remember, when we think about stewardship, it's not just time, talent, and treasure, but it also includes a stewardship of truth and a stewardship of relationships. That God has given you knowledge, and he is going to hold you accountable for the knowledge you have. That's truth. But he's also going to hold us accountable for how we invested that truth and the relationships we've got. We all have a sphere of influence, some larger, some wider. It's not the issue of how big your sphere of influence is. It's fidelity to God's purpose and call. That reward in the kingdom of heaven is always based on faithfulness to opportunity, not how much time, talent, and treasure you have. The issue is what you do with what you've been given, and that will be the divine equalizer. And so as we look at this, then, we all see that we have a purpose in which we've been called to, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to be adopted as sons and created and called to be for the praise of his glory in Ephesians chapter 1. And only when we seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew 6.33, can we really be fully the people God meant us to be. So here's what I want to do. I want you in, to invite you this day, perhaps later today you can make, do this simple exercise. I want you to look back on your own mental and emotional and moral and spiritual development. And it would be good to ask yourself this question. What evidences do you see of God's work in that developmental process? What people and resources did he specifically use to shape you into the person you have become? And then, in what area of your life do you sense the greatest need for further development? What resources are available to bring that about? These are issues, then, of stewardship, and they're issues of developing your potential. One of the great things we need to continue doing is to maintain the mindset of a childlike sense of wonder and awe, receptivity, and learning. Remember what we said about the the great uh, temptation of our youth is to be naive and uh, without a lack with a lack of focus. And in our middle years, our great temptation is double-mindedness and entanglement. But in our older years, our temptation is to become unteachable, and thus to have a a loss of the sense of what it means to be a student, a learner, a a person who has a childlike wonder. You need to go into a second naivete. The first naivete was that of childishness. Then we need to move beyond that through realism into a second naivete, a childlikeness. And in this childlikeness, not childishness, in a childlike way, We receive life with wonder 
awe, amazement, and we see that life is gift, and we take pleasure in the present moment, we're fully alive to the now. It's interesting how uh, children, when they play, they're not thinking about what they're going to do next. They're totally immersed in what they're doing. Adults have a way, after a while, of not living in the present tense, but we live for the next thing, and the next, and the next, and we're not even alive when we're meeting somebody for lunch. We're already thinking about what we're going to do after that, and always thinking about the future, and therefore never alive to what we only had, which was the present tense. So it's a good thing for us, then, to steward this. A second passage about uh, this matter of leadership in terms of who God is and now who I am, this would be found in Philemon, the, the, the little epistle of uh, Philemon, which is uh, the last epistle that we have of Paul in the canonical sequence, though the last epistle was actually 2 Timothy. It, just, it appears just before Hebrews. It's a small little epistle, and I'm not going to read the whole text, but let me just summarize the basic message. Paul, during his uh, first Roman imprisonment, continually served others while he was under house arrest by teaching and equipping people. And one of the people who visited Paul while he was in Rome was a slave, a runaway slave, by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus, this Onesimus had robbed and had escaped from his master in Colossae, a Christian by the name of Philemon. And Paul not only led Onesimus to Christ, but then began to nurture him and build into his life and teach him and develop him. And then he reached a point where this former thief and runaway became a man of dignity and character, and it became evident to Paul that now it was needful for Onesimus to go back and to be reconciled with his former master. It's a scary thing. And Paul sent Onesimus with this little epistle to Philemon in Colossae. And in this little epistle, he invites Philemon to not only forgive Onesimus, but also to receive him as a brother in Christ, no longer as a slave, but now as a brother in Christ. Radical stuff, this, especially in a time in the Roman Empire when two-thirds of the people who lived in the empire were slaves. So there's radical implications that this has for that whole institution. In any case, it's evident that this is, in fact, this letter was delivered because we still have it. It's evident that, because uh, if, if he'd run away and decided not to return, it's doubtful we'd have this epistle. So he'd obviously given it to Philemon, and Philemon had, in fact, received him no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. May I say this about leadership and, and managing human resources? Effective leaders take great pleasure in managing and developing the people around them. They take pleasure in investing their lives, indeed giving their lives away by investing them in other people. Because the way you truly invest in people, has a way somehow of enriching you. This is the kind of thing that's not some limited resource, not some commodity that's one way, but rather the more you give, just as love, the more you, you love, the greater your capacity. So the more you give yourself away, the more you discover that you really have been received, that you've received from the living God. So you discover then a whole new dimension. You take pleasure in managing people, in, in managing their resources and in developing them, their capacities, and you're not threatened when some of those people move beyond you. 
An insecure leader is threatened if somebody actually does better than them. Jim Collins is becoming well-known in the business arena. I read his book, uh, Beyond Entrepreneurship, which came out in 1992, and he was talking about leadership development then. And then his book, Built to Last, discusses more of the qualities of a leader. But then in his newest book, uh, Good to Great, he talks about this concept of a level five leadership. And level five leaders are people who have an amazing ability to somehow integrate personal humility with a genuine passion for the good of the whole. And when they are asked, what was the key to the success of your company? They never look at themselves. They'll attribute to other factors, other people that they worked with. Maybe it's luck, but they will not take the credit. When they are asked when things went wrong, they'll take the blame themselves. It's an interesting thing. There's a remarkable humility in these leaders. And I think that that's actually a biblical response to leadership. You can find all four levels of le- all five levels of leadership in the Bible, by the way. Saul was, for example, perhaps we would call him a, a level four leader. He had a lot of panache, and he had uh, a lot of aggression and drive and so forth, and tremendous ambition, but it really never led to the quality that we're talking about here. Abraham Lincoln would be an exemplar of a level five leader. We had personal humility, but also a tremendous passion, and he invested everything into the needs of other people in that regard. And so you and I are called, I think, to that form of leadership, to a sense of humility, understanding what whatever we've got has been gift, but at the same time, a sense not of lethargy, but of passion for, your, for the development of your company, development of people in it, uh, development of the people in your life and around you, your friends, and to invest your life in such a way that you take pleasure even when they go beyond you. One of the qualities of these leaders is that they actually want to see themselves exceeded. They uh, take pleasure in the idea that something may go beyond themselves. A level four leadership often does not manage um, the, the issue of successorship very well. They don't prepare for their successors because, frankly, they want to build it all around their own egos. And here, uh, they don't want to step down. A really secure leader is a man who wishes to see himself exceeded. I think of Barnabas. Remember Barnabas taking a young man by the name of Saul and building into him Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and built in it. So it was Barnabas and Saul at first, and then it became, and then Saul became Paul, and it was Barnabas and Paul. Later on, it was Paul and Barnabas. It switched around, and every from that point, it was always Paul and Barnabas. He must increase; I must decrease. Is this idea? And so, rather than being insecure because the guy just went beyond you, you take pleasure in the investment and realize you're not the ultimate. You don't have all that others need. You're only a component of a larger whole. And so, you take pleasure. Suppose, for example, you are mentoring a man, and then they go, that person eventually goes on to somebody else. That is a good thing. It's not a bad thing because you can't really bring to the table all that person needs. A less secure person would be threatened by such a notion. But a person who's secure in Christ understands that he is called to give his life in exchange for others. And what he does by way of service to other people becomes service to our Lord. The um, imagery in the next text that I have in mind is that of 
how it works in our lives. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul talks about the way he invested and gave his life for other people, specifically in the church in Thessalonica. He talks about how he came and he and his uh, associates came as apostles of Christ. They didn't seek to be a burden to them in verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So he's used the image of how they were like mothers, but also like fathers. Suppose you were to treat people in your arena of influence in this way. Suppose you were to say, if this were my daughter or my son, what would I do? How would I treat that person? That's not a bad starting point, to look at it that way and to see that you are really called to invest in them as you would invest in your own children. And finally, Proverbs chapter 4, speaking of parents and children, Solomon's counsel, as he seeks to prepare his son to receive wisdom and discernment and understanding and prudence, in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, if it's one thing he wants him to learn, it's the skill and the art of living. He wants to take that raw material and he wants to shape that through discipline and the development of skill so that this person becomes a contributor an investor in the lives of other people. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender and only a child of my mother, only child of my mother, he taught me and said, lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commandments and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or swerve from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom, though it cost all you have, get understanding. Esteem her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor. And so he talks about this idea of wisdom. And may I say that the most wise thing you and I can do, and we've talked about this before, is to treat things according to their true value. The wisest thing you can do, Jonathan Edwards told us, is to treat things in accordance with their true value, which means that the dumbest thing you and I can do is to treat the temporal as though it were eternal, and the eternal as though it were temporal. That's foolish, because then a man can give his life in exchange for things God says are totally trivial in the end. Ashes in your mouth at the end of the journey. Who wants that? We all want to have something that will last. And true wisdom is skill in the art of living life with each area under its dominion. And true wisdom is to embrace the eternal perspective and to realize that we are aliens, sojourners, pilgrims, strangers in this earth, and whose home really is in the celestial city. So if we are wise, we will invest our lives in the lives of others because that's what's going to endure so that when you are 
brought into the heavenly dwellings, there will be people to welcome you there and people who will be, have been touched by your influence. 